Thanks so much for listening to the weekly teaching podcast from Prodigal Church. We're so glad you're connecting with us online. If you've been listening for a while or you consider Prodigal as your home church, would you consider giving monthly to support this ministry? We're so grateful for the increasing impact our church is having on our online listeners. Thanks for being a part of us. You can discover all things Prodigal on the Prodigal mobile app, available at your app store or on our website, prodigalchurchfresno.com. Now, let's dive right into this week's teaching. I have loved this sermon series. It's been so great to do a Bible study about Bible study. Um, But one of the pitfalls of doing a series like this is that there is so much information, so much content, and we don't want this to feel like like a seminary classroom. And I think overall we've done a pretty good job, but this week it might be too much information, okay? This week it might be a little bit more heady and a little bit less hearty, but it's just one week out of six, so cut me some slack. That said, uh, let's get our thinking caps on this morning, and we are going to look at the New Testament in 20-ish minutes. And the New Testament was written um, from the year A.D. 45 to A.D. 95. And it is a combination of history and letters from the early Christians, written to the early Christians. And these books and letters that were being passed around the Roman Empire, sometimes one community would have a few letters of Paul and one particular gospel, and another community or church would have a few letters of John and the gospel of John, and no, no one had all of them uh, for the first several hundred years of Christian history. In the second century, a church leader by the name of Marcion Uh, began to notice that all these kind of New Testament letters and histories that were being floated around, he said, "This, this should be our scripture. Let's get rid of the Old Testament altogether. And Marcion forced the church to wrestle with what should be considered Christian scripture. The, The New Testament only, or both the New and the Old, which books of the New could make it in. And so there was this need to be able to say which letters, which books are authoritative and which aren't. The church, in the end, rightly rejected Marcion's proposal. The Old Testament was considered sacred scripture to Jesus, and it must be sacred scripture to us. Thus began a long process of discerning which letters were inspired and which ones were not. And it wasn't until the fourth century that Athanasius, a bishop of Alexandria, uh, helped settle the matter. And there were three main criteria Uh, for canonization, which means the process of discerning which books in the Bible get in and which ones don't. Uh, The three criteria were, number one, apostolic origin. Uh, Were were they to be related to the authoritative works of the apostles? Uh, The early Christians asked, is this particular work that's under question the work of one of the people who were with Jesus in his life? And if it's not the work of an apostle, is it at least produced under the supervision of or with the stamp of approval of the early apostles? Okay, so that was number one, apostolic authority. Number two, recognition by the churches. This principle asked the earliest leading churches uh, how they viewed the book. If the churches in Ephesus or Jerusalem or Antioch or Rome uh, accepted a book as authoritative, then the chances were given that the church as a whole would accept it as authoritative. And number three, the content of the book. This criterion asked whether a particular book's content agreed with the apostles' teaching and agreed in doctrine with what uh, they wrote 
and how they lived. Fun fact, if this was March Madness and we were discerning which teams get into the NCAA tournament or not, the book of Hebrews and the book of Revelation would be the last two in. See, even Christians 2,000 years ago, 1,700 years ago, had a great difficulty with the book of Revelation. And then the last ones out, the last ones out were uh, the letter of Barnabas, the apocalypse of Peter, shepherd of Hermas, and first uh, and second Clement, okay? All of these books uh, didn't make it in, very historical. Uh, many early Christians considered them scripture, but at the end, they just didn't quite make the cut. It wasn't until 300 years after Jesus where we begin to have what we now call the Bible, both the Old and New Testament. The early Christians affirmed that the story of the New Testament must be seen as a continuation of the Old. They can't be separated. The Old Testament tells the story of how God called Israel to be a blessing to the world and how Israel continued failing this and God sent prophets and priests to try to help Israel course correct but to no avail. All the while there are these signs, these prophecies, these messages of hope that one day Israel's true king would arrive and set the wrong things right. That one day a new covenant and a new kingdom will show up. And then God goes dark for 400 years, right? The, the intertestamental period, from the year 400 until the time of Christ, no recorded prophets or messages from God to Israel. And then in 4 BC, okay, the ancient historians got the date a little bit wrong, but in 4 BC, Jesus shows up as a baby in Bethlehem. He shows up on the scene in rural Israel. Well, why Israel? Like, like the world's pretty big, right? So like, why not Indiana? Why not Japan? Why not Brazil or somewhere else in the Americas? Or even in Rome, which was the center of the world at the time. Why Israel? Because Jesus is the fulfillment and the continuation of the story of the Old Testament, which centers in on Israel. God's covenant with Abraham and with David was always that through Israel, the world would be blessed. Okay, so that's why Israel, but why then? If God's plan was always to show up on the scene, why didn't he show up on the scene earlier? He had plenty of opportunities, hundreds of years of opportunities. So we've talked about why Jesus arrived, but we've never explored when Jesus arrived. Why was it the first century? Well, the New Testament actually speaks into this. In Galatians chapter 4, it says this, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. So to answer the question, why did Jesus come in the first century? The Bible says, because the set time had fully come. Okay, well, it doesn't really clear things up, does it? Okay, what does that mean? I think we have to look at the geo and political circumstances and landscape of the first century to discover fully why the time had come fully then. So we're going to bring back the timeline that we used a couple weeks ago, but stay with me here, okay? The Greeks and Alexander the Great arrived on the scene in 336 BC, and the Greeks conquered the world. Um, Alexander the Great set out to unify the world under his rule, and so for many years following him, hundreds of years after, uh, the there became a common language. The language of Greek was spoken throughout the empire. For the first time in human history, there is a shared language between all these different nations and people groups. Uh, this shared language, Greek, made it possible for early Christians 
to travel to many countries to tell the good news of Jesus without the cumbersome burden of translation. So why the first century? Number one, common language. Um, now, the Greeks were eventually taken over by the Romans in 146 BC. It was the Romans who had constructed the famous Roman roads, right? Remember that phrase, all roads lead to Rome? Right? Some of these roads are actually still in existence. These roads would allow early Christians to travel safely to share their new ideas. So why the first century? Common language, and then the Roman highway system connecting the nations. And not only were there many roads to travel, but there was often safety for the travelers on the roads. And this was due to the vast presence of the large Roman army, which leads to the third potential reason why the time had fully come. There was a Pax Romana, the Roman peace, that endured from 27 to 180. Jesus was born in the same generation in which it began, and it meant a relatively calm environment for the lower regions of Europe, Asia Minor, Middle East, Egypt, and Northern Africa. In a city such as Jerusalem, for example, Jews were allowed to preserve their own customs. Stability and relative tolerance opened the world up to a spread of new ideas. Roads and shipping lanes made things happen more quickly and uh, more efficiently. Can you begin to see that God initiates his rescue, his restoration plan in Jesus as soon as possible? Right when the world was ripe for a new king, a new way, a new kingdom, Jesus shows up as a baby in Bethlehem. Now, we're halfway done with the sermon and I haven't begun telling the story of the New Testament yet, okay? Bear with me, let's go rapid fire. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first books of the New Testament, tell the story of the birth, life, teachings, miracles, actions, character, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And this happens in 4 BC to roughly 30 AD. The gospel writers all tell the story of Jesus from different perspectives. Matthew tells the story from a very Jewish worldview, a, a, a Jewish viewpoint. Lots of Old Testament and Hebrew scripture references throughout the gospel of Matthew. Mark tells the story of Jesus through the perspective of Peter, and it was the very first gospel written. Luke tells it from the Greek perspective. He was the only non-Jewish author in all of Scripture. He was a Greek doctor. And John tells the story of Jesus from the perspective of his closest disciple, with a focus in on the divinity of Jesus. The Gospels, the ministry and teachings in life of Jesus, make up 46% of the New Testament. Almost 50% is all about the life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus. At the end of the Gospels, Jesus ascends into heaven. And before Jesus leaves, he echoes what he had told them throughout his ministry, that when he leaves, he will send his Spirit. He must go, but the Spirit will replace him. And I think that the Holy Spirit kind of gets a bad rap in the church nowadays, right? Either there's too much focus on the Holy Spirit, or there's no focus on the Spirit at all. And even in the first century, the disciples are probably like, it's a bad trade-off. How about Jesus, you stay here, and the Spirit can stay up there, okay? We want to keep you. But Jesus, as God in Abad, could only be in one place at one time. With the coming of God's Spirit, His Spirit is able to move in all places at once. And not only in and through these countless new churches that are beginning in the ancient world, but also through new hearts, redeemed, and where the Spirit of God is endowed upon us. The Spirit is living and helping make influences on all of our decisions. The Spirit lives within the, the global body of Christ. 
not just one person in first century Palestine. And this is where the book of Acts begins. The full title is traditionally called the Acts of the Apostles, and it's probably more appropriate to title it the Acts of the Holy Spirit. If you include Acts with the Gospels, these histories take up 60% of our New Testament, okay? Acts tells the story of the first 30 years of the church, how it grew and spread like wildfire throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. First, the Holy Spirit shows up and reverses the Tower of Babel, right? The Tower of Babel is this ancient story found in the Hebrew Scriptures where people all spoke the same language, but because of their pride and disobedience to God, God confuses them and they begin to speak different languages. On Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, everyone spoke different languages, but when the Spirit arrives, they speak the same language. And the Apostle Peter preaches a sermon, and in his sermon, he tells the story of Israel and how Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the promised one, the promised Messiah, the rightful king. In Acts chapter 2, it says this, With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. See, Jesus had chosen 12 disciples, and after he ascended into heaven, uh, the followers of Jesus began to look at his disciples, his, the apostles. Uh, they, they looked up to them, the people who had followed Jesus closely. They became the leaders of the early church. They were apostles. They had been with Jesus. So these early Christians began proclaiming the good news of Jesus, proclaiming the gospel. And I think you'll be surprised to know that in every sermon in the book of Acts, where hundreds, even thousands of people respond and become followers of Jesus, there is not one reference to hell. The preaching of the early apostles during the greatest spread in Christianity, there is not one appeal to afterlife issues. That doesn't mean that they didn't believe in heaven or hell. It just means that if you want to preach the gospel like the apostles did in the book of Acts, then you don't need to threaten people with eternal damnation. The question wasn't so much, is Jesus Lord of your life? The question was, is Jesus Lord of all? Is he the Lord of everything, the whole world? If preaching the gospel is telling people how to avoid an afterlife in hell, the apostles in the book of Acts did not preach the gospel. Their gospel was the audacious announcement that the world has a new Lord. It's not Caesar. There's this new king, a new emperor, and it is the crucified and risen Jesus of Nazareth. Their invitation was to believe was to believe this joyful announcement, to turn from their destructive ways of sin and be baptized into the new world where Jesus is Lord. Their gospel was about the arrival of a new kingdom of Christ here and now, and about the hope of resurrection in the age to come, true to their Jewish roots. And the gospel takes off. It goes viral. But the religious establishment doesn't like this Jesus movement. It's allowing non-Jews to be a part of it. And we can't have that. It's decentralizing the temple. It's not about the temple anymore. We can't have that. We have our religious system in place. And Jesus disrupts it. This new Jesus movement upsets the apple cart. So the power brokers and the religious leaders in charge are in danger of losing their power, their influence. So many try to squash this Jesus movement. And in Acts chapter 7, an early Christian named Stephen is stoned to death. Stoning 
is not an efficient way. There are better ways of execution. But stoning does have an advantage. It allows everyone to participate and then for each individual to then exonerate themselves. Right? Well, well, well I didn't kill them. I just threw a stone. So it's, it's communal participation, but individual exoneration. And there was a Jewish leader named Saul of Tarsus who did not throw a stone that day to kill Stephen, but he led the charge. And one day, that same man was riding on a donkey on, his road to, on this road to Damascus. And in Acts chapter 9, it says this, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. In AD 34, Saul becomes Paul. The persecutor of the church becomes a leader of the church. Isn't that so like Jesus? He takes a hater and he makes him a lover. He takes a fighter and he makes him a peacemaker. He takes a religious Jew who thought God's promises are only for the Jewish people and he makes that apostle God's messenger to all the world, all the Gentiles, all the non-Jews. What is in your past that you think disqualifies you from being used by God? Did you kill Christians? Did you oversee the public execution of Jesus' early followers? Surely your past is not like Paul's. Surely if God can transform an arrogant, closed-minded, religious hater like the Apostle Paul into a grace-filled preacher who proclaims Jesus to the same people he used to hate and persecute, then surely he can use you. Then surely he can use me. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've said, no matter how you failed, God is the God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances. He can redeem you and he can redeem me. Now for Paul, this didn't happen overnight. And throughout the New Testament, Paul tells his testimony over and over again, really to anybody who would listen. At first, people were scared of him. Like, isn't this the same guy who was killing Christians and now he's saying he is one? Is this just a ruse so that he can identify and kill more Jesus followers? But no. Instead, Paul plants churches in Corinth, in Galatia, in Ephesus, in Thessalonica, in Rome. And he's beaten, arrested, and put on trial all throughout his life. Eventually, he's locked up in Rome and beheaded for his faith in AD 64. The persecutor of the faith now becomes a martyr of the faith. And the rest of the New Testament is his letters and interaction with these early Christian communities. So you hear churchy words like 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Well, those are just is the first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, the church in Corinth. And then 2nd Corinthians, the second letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. The book of Romans, what's Paul's letter to the church in Rome? 
all in all, Paul, Paul wrote at least 13 New Testament letters. There are other letters by written by other apostles, letters from James and John and Peter, but most, Testament, most New Testament letters were written by the Apostle Paul. And then to close out the Bible, we have the book of Revelation, but we're not going to go there yet because on Halloween, we're going to look at that book in and of itself. I'll close with this. Karl Barth tells the story of a warehouse similar to Plato's cave. So you imagine a, a group of men and women who live in a huge warehouse. They're born in the warehouse. They grew up in it. Everything they need for their comfort and life exists in the warehouse. There are no exits to the building, but there are windows. But the windows are thick with dust, never cleaned out, so no one bothers looking out the windows. Why would they? Everything they need is just before them. But then one day, one of the children drags a step stool under one of the windows, scrapes off the grime, and he looks out, and he sees people walking on the street. He calls to his friends to come and look, and they crowd around the window. They never knew that there was a world outside of their warehouse. And they notice a person looking out into the street and looking up, pointing. Soon, other people started gathering and, and pointing up and looking excitedly, and the children looked up, but there was nothing but the roof above them. Nothing but the roof of the warehouse that they had always known. Finally, they get tired of watching these people on the street acting crazily, pointing up at the sky, even though the sky is what it has always been, just a simple part of their warehouse. What's the point in stopping for no reason at all, just looking at what you always see? But what those people in the street were looking at was an airplane, or geese flying, or a gigantic pile of cumulus clouds, or the moon. The people in the street look up and they see the heavens, everything in the heavens. The people in the warehouse have no heavens above them, only the roof. Then one day, one of those kids cut a door out of the warehouse and convinced his friends to go outside with him. And there they discovered the immense sky above them and the great horizons beyond them. Life in the warehouse never prepared them for anything like this. Now, the adults in the warehouse, they scoff at the tales of children coming back and saying what they found. After all, they're completely in control of their warehouse world in ways that they could never be on the outside. They want to keep the world controllable and comfortable. And Karl Barth says that some of us read the Bible like we're people who only want to invite the bigness of God into our own warehouse. We want to take all of these incredible stories and images and these profound truths that should open us up into the wild world beyond. But instead, we say, God, come and visit me in my little world. Make my comfortable world a little more comfortable. Instead, the Bible is designed to be that, that hole that we cut through the warehouse. The warehouse of our lives that allows us to venture out into a much more beautiful, big world. It opens and calls us into so many more possibilities. The Bible is written as a story because our lives are a story. And it's not just a story. It's our story that we're called to live out. God, I pray in Jesus' name that we would be people that continue the story. The story of the spread of the good news that Jesus is King, that Jesus is Lord, and that his kingdom has arrived. And we pray that it continues to arrive on earth 
as it is in heaven. So God, help us to see ourselves as part of your story. Um, the book of Acts ends in chapter 28. The Acts of the Holy Spirit stops in Acts 28. God, may we see our lives as Acts 29 and Acts 30 and Acts 31. God, that we are the continuation of the Acts of the Holy Spirit. So move through us in our world as you did for the early Christians 2,000 years ago. In Jesus' name, amen. We want to thank you so much for joining us online at Prodigal Church Fresno. We hope that you're tracking with us through our Bible reading plan found on the Prodigal app as we search and study and wrestle with the scriptures together. Next week, we're going to deal with the tough parts of the Bible, some of the passages that we probably wish weren't in there. So it's going to be incredible. So we want you to come um, in person if you can, bring your Bibles, have it open, ready to go as we dig into the scriptures together and wrestle with them to become more Christ-like. We love you. We hope you have an amazing week. Peace in the Middle East.